If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. These are two very, very full chapters, and I want us to basically try to dive right in. Uh, if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, I believe it begins on page 121. 121. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us a little bit about what we've studied so far. Uh, Moses, he, he likely wrote the book of Numbers near the end of his life, and the events of, of this book... They, they pick up nearly two years after the people of Israel have been freed, rescued from slavery in Egypt. And, um, and it follows, this book follows the, the period of, of about 40 years where the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness. Now we have already, in our study of the book of Numbers, we've completed the first major section in the book. And we have begun to study the second major section of this book. And in recent chapters, the people of Israel, they have left Mount Sinai, they've started their journey and made, begun their, their journey to the place, the land, that God promised to give Abraham and his descendants. When we come to Numbers, we, we come to learn that God, He has kept His promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. There's roughly a million and a half to two million people wandering through this wilderness. But God has not yet given this people the land that He promised. God multiplied Abraham's offspring. They're known as the people of Israel. Uh, and they're God's people. And though the people of Israel were slaved in Egypt for a time, God, he, he rescued them, as I said. And He raised up Moses to rule over them. To rule over God's people. Uh, and Moses, he was ruling over God's people just like God's son would one day rule over God's people. And the situation of the book of Numbers is that God has, has called out His people. He's brought them under His rule, but they are not yet in His place. They are journeying to the promised land. And this journey, it's part of the storyline of the Old Testament and the whole Bible of God's redemption of sinners through His Son and King, Jesus Christ. And this, this story is paradigmatic of what Jesus Christ would do in bringing God's people into God's place under God's rule, as one Bible scholar likes to put it. The, the book of Numbers continually forces us to ask the question, will God's people make it to God's place and live under God's rule? And the force of that question, will they make it? force of that question is felt nowhere more powerfully than here in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. It could be argued that these two chapters are the very center of this book and the reason why this book has been written. Last week we saw that while on their way, while Israel was journeying, the people of Israel complained against the Lord for the difficulties that they faced in the wilderness and the food that God had provided for them. In God's kindness and grace, He also provided them a mediator in Moses who pled with God to forgive Israel of her sins. We're going to see the importance of Moses' work of mediation and intercession appear yet again in these two chapters, Numbers 13 and 14. But unlike the last two chapters, these two chapters do not focus so much on Moses as they do on whether or not God's people will make it safely to God's place and live under God's rule. And if I had to summarize the, the kind of the thrust of these two chapters uh, in one idea or thought, I think that I'd put it in the words of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In the face of Israel's faithlessness, we see that God remains faithful to his promise to bring his people into his place and under his rule. So let's turn now and consider our first point together this morning, the requirement of God. This is the first point of the sermon, the requirement of God. And as we do, I want us to read Numbers chapter 13, just verses 1 to 3. Numbers 13, verses 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Well, it's not hard to see how these verses fit into the storyline of the Old Testament, how they reveal God's faithfulness. These verses remind us that God is, in fact, keeping His promises to bring His people into a good land. The people of Israel are now close enough on their journey to send out spies into the land. And that's what the Lord requires of them. He requires Moses and that the people of Israel send out 12 representatives of the nation, one from each tribe, to go and spy out the land. They are to see if God's word of promise about the land proves true. According to verses 17 to 20 in Numbers chapter 13, they're to see whether or not God was faithful to lead them to a land that was good, to a land that flowed with milk and honey, and to a land that produced good fruit. They were also to see what kind of inhabitants dwelt in this land, lived in this land, and whether or not they, they dwelt in secure uh, uh, fortresses, fortified cities. And as you look through verses 4 through 16, perhaps you wonder to yourself, not only had he pronounced these names, but why on earth do we have yet again in the book of Numbers uh, the tribes listed and the names of the people who were appointed spies? Well, because the writer, he is telling a story. He's showing us that Moses and these 12 men obeyed the requirements of God. That is not insignificant. In fact, this is actually going to be an important contrast for what is to come in the story, disobedience. By recounting the faithfulness and obedience in its fullest extent at the beginning of these two chapters, we are being prepared to feel the effect and the weight of the faithlessness and disobedience that we're about to read in just a few verses. The author, Moses, is also showing us that all 12 tribes had an interest in this venture. He is providing us with the, the key threads of the plot. The fact that these 12 spies spend 40 days in the land, as verse 25 tells us, will come to play a major role in what is about to unfold. So let's turn then and consider what is going to unfold. Let's turn and consider our second point, the report of the spies. Read Numbers chapter 13, uh, verse 26 through 33. Numbers chapter 13, verse 26. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, 
The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Geb. The, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. We saw there the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. At one level, we could say that these verses contain not just one report or two, but three. There is an initial report concerning the land there in verses 26 to 29, which is followed by a minority report in verse 30, and a majority report in verses 31 to 33. And the initial report there, verses 26 to 29, is striking. The, the, the 12 spies confirmed that the land is just what God promised it would be. It was an exceedingly good land. It was a, a, a land which produced fruit, a land which flowed with milk and honey. And all of this, it communicates to us that God was faithful to His promise. God promised a good land, and He provided a good land. And with this in view, God's people should be excited to enter into God's place. Having said that, the initial report does not hold back on the difficulties that the land presents. There are some inhabitants in the land that they are strong and mighty. This is precisely what Moses actually asked them to report on. Moses wanted to know this. He asked them this in verses 17 to 20. Now when we get to the, the minority report there in verse 30, we can already sense that the people of Israel are not pleased with the initial report. Courageous Caleb has to kind of quiet down the crowd. And after he does, he actually speaks to their fears. The Israelites fear the people of the land more than they fear God. But Caleb knows and believes that God will keep his promises to go before them and defeat their enemies. That's what he promised previously. A little later, we'll learn that Joshua agreed with Caleb's minority report. But we know that the ten other spies did not. They make that clear in verse 31 when they say, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, as a careful Bible reader, you should be thinking to yourself, but this is not about you. It was never about you. Egypt was stronger than you. But Egypt was not stronger than God. Remember what he did there. This is God's promise that he has committed himself to fulfill. And he is all powerful. This is not about you. This is about God. And, and how often do we take a kind of me-centered view of the world where we almost shut God out of our thoughts? How often do we do that and not have a God-centered view of the world and remember His presence, His promises, and His power? 
you know, we, we might be tempted to think that a stronger and mightier army is a sufficient reason for caution. But that is not what we are to think about this report. Moses actually tells us exactly how we are to think about this report. At the beginning of verse 32, notice what he says at the beginning of verse 32. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. And this is a bad report, not because it wasn't what Moses wanted to hear, but because it was faithless and false. It was faithless because these men didn't believe that the Lord would go before them and fight for them as he had promised. And it was false because the land does not devour its inhabitants. There's plenty of people living in the land who are doing just fine. No, in saying that the land would devour its inhabitants, they were suggesting that the people of Israel couldn't survive in the land because it was not a good land. In other words, they were suggesting that it was an uninhabitable land. Okay, people, you are in the wilderness. Like, that's an inhabitable place, and God is sustaining you. Such a statement that the land devours its inhabitants was directly contrary to the earlier report that they had given and the fruit that they were holding in their own hands. We, we need to recognize this about sin. Sin distorts the truth for purposes of rationalization and justification of rebellion. Sin also seeks to arouse the fear of men. Faith, as we see from Caleb's example, embraces the promises of God and depends upon Him. Well, which way will the people of Israel go? Will they listen to Caleb and Joshua? Or will they listen to those who gave a faithless and false report? Well, we learn the answer to that question in our next point. The reaction of the people. Read Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 10. Numbers 14, verses 1 to 10. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. I just read that section, didn't I? I'm starting to read another section. Forgive me. Let me start at Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 again, because I was reading in Numbers 13. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not 
fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Well, these verses are simply astounding, especially when you read the right ones. Uh, For the the reaction of the people, it's nothing less than rebellion. In verse 1, with the people of Israel weeping in the night, there are faint echoes of what took place on the night of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 30, after the Lord had struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, we're told that Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt cried out in the middle of the night. What are the people of Israel doing in verse 1 there? They're crying out in the night. The people of Israel are almost cast as Egyptians, not God's people. And how appropriate, for they are rejecting God's rule like Pharaoh did. And how ironic too, for they longed to be back in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule. They even suggest appointing a leader to take them back in verse 4. Dying in Egypt or in the wilderness, they think, would have been better than trying to enter the promised land under these conditions. Notice how the grumbling of Numbers 11 returns and how their fears are cast as concerns for others, for their wives and children. They try to legitimize and rationalize their rebellion. Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua know what this means. They know that this reaction, though cloaked in fear and concern, is really a fierce rebellion against God. And they are distraught by this reaction. That's what the the imagery of tearing their clothes and falling on their faces is meant to communicate. They, They try to reassure the people of Israel that this land is good. They try to reassure the people of Israel that the Lord is good. And that He's with them. And that He keeps His promises. In verse 9, they explicitly warned the people not to rebel against the Lord. But they are not able to overcome that faithless and false report. No, the congregation even gathers up stones to stone them. But it seems as though their hands are stayed by the Lord making His glory to appear at the tent of meeting. The Lord's appearing at the tent of meeting almost has the feeling of a divine rescue of the faithful. The Lord's appearing also prompts us to wonder, what does the Lord think of this reaction? We learn the Lord's perspective in Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 to 19. And here we're considering the response of the Lord and the request of Moses. Read Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 to 19. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. 
And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. The Lord's response is sharp, is it not? He, he points out Israel's irrational unbelief, especially in the face of His mighty works. He, he threatens to strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. To us, this might seem a bit of an overreaction, but it is not at all. Remember, this is the Lord God who made each and every one of these people. He made them to love, honor, worship, and obey Him. But what are they doing with their grumbling and complaining? They are questioning His goodness and wisdom. They are challenging His authority and rule. They are casting off His kingship, taking His throne, and attempting to rule themselves. Israel's rebellion is heinous. The Lord's threat of disinheriting Israel is jarring for another reason. God's promises to Abraham to bring his people into the promised land appear to be in question with that threat. Will God bring his people into his place and under his rule? If he wipes them out, will there even be any people to bring in? Was this a real threat? It absolutely was. But Moses was also a real mediator who interceded for Israel, just as he did in Numbers 11 and just as he did in Exodus 32 when Israel worshipped at the golden calf. The Lord, you see, he uses means to preserve his people and propel his promises forward to fulfillment. It may surprise you, but this threat is precisely one of those means. This threat was the means that God would use to prompt Moses to intercede and so spare Israel from being wiped out and disinherited. God, as our church's statement of faith says, comprehends all the means in connection with the end. As I mentioned a moment ago, what we read here has unmistakable parallels with Moses' mediation in Exodus 32 when Israel worshipped the golden calf. In, in both of those places, in Exodus 32 and here in Numbers 13 and 14, the, Lord, the Lord's threat to wipe out Israel and, and, dis and disinherit them is the implicit call for Moses to stand up and advocate for the people of Israel. In both places, the Lord promises to start again with Moses. And this plan reminds us of the swift action that God took when He flooded the earth and began again with one family, with Noah's family. It's as if the Lord is proposing to do the same here, wiping out all the people of Israel and beginning again with Moses. But what does Moses request in light of the Lord's response? He, he has the audacity to request that God pardon his people. And on what basis and what, for what reason and to what, what end? Moses requests that God pardon his people on the basis of his glorious character. He effectively says, Lord, pardon and forgive because you have told me yourself. And then he actually repeats the Lord's words back to him. 
Lord, pardon, forgive, because you have told me yourself that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love, and because you forgive iniquity and transgression. Moses is asking God to pardon his people because that is who he is. He is a God who pardons and forgives. And the other reason that Moses asks God to pardon his people is in order to preserve the glory of his name. If the Lord does not pardon his people, Moses effectively says to the Lord, if you do not pardon Israel, then the people of Egypt will hear about this. And they will think that you are weak. Can you, I mean, that's how Moses approaches the Lord. They will think that you are weak. That you are not the glorious God that you are. Moses requests that God pardon and forgive Israel on the basis of his holy character for the glory of his name. These verses raise uh, concerns and questions for some, but I think we should keep, uh, we should notice and keep our eyes on what Moses is really concerned about. What Moses is really concerned about in this passage is that sinners need an advocate with a father. As we thought about last week, Moses' work of, of mediation, standing and pleading for God's people that he would forgive, his work of mediation pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ who would intercede on behalf of sinners. Sinners need a mediator, someone to stand before God and plead with Him to be compassionate toward them and to forgive them. And God has fully and finally provided that mediator in Jesus Christ. And that's the good news of Christianity. And in fact, if you're, you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower and believer of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then this is especially what we, what we want. We as Christians want you to know and believe this morning. We want you to believe that Jesus pleads the merits of His life, death, and resurrection for you. So that you might be pardoned and forgiven. You see, we've, we've all been made in God's image. We've been made to love Him and honor Him and obey Him. We've been made to live under His rule. But sadly, just like Adam and Eve, we have all turned away from God's commands. Instead of living God's way, we have lived our own way. We have made our own plans and questioned God's plans in the process. Like Israel, we've questioned whether or not God is good and wise with what He's doing in our lives. And this is nothing short of sin and rebellion against our Creator. And because of our sin and rebellion, we deserve to face God's full and just wrath against our sin. We deserve to face God's eternally unrelenting wrath against our sin in hell. We deserve to be disinherited. But out of His great love and mercy, God has sent a mediator and an advocate. God has sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to request and secure our pardon. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus never sinned, He never complained, He never rebelled, and never turned aside from God's good commands. And yet Jesus died on the cross bearing the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all in His substitutionary death 
on behalf of repenting sinners, that that work was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus calls all men everywhere to turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Jesus calls you, friends, to turn from your rebellion and to turn to Him in loving submission, believing that He lived, died, and was raised for your salvation. He calls you to believe that He is your advocate with the Father. God the Father cannot deny His Son. So friends, turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and find mercy and pardon from God. My Christian brothers and sisters, we should praise God that we have an advocate that is not only like Moses, but better than Moses. And still we can learn from Moses' pleadings and prayers. Christian, do you pray and make your requests to God in this way? Do you, like Moses, plead with God to answer your prayers on the basis of His character for the glory of His name? We conclude our prayers with, in Jesus' name I pray, because Jesus taught us to pray that way in John chapter 14, verse 13. And because there is no other way to the Father but through Him. And we also conclude our prayers in this way because we long for the name of Jesus Christ to be glorified. It is positively good and right to plead with God to answer our requests for the glory of His Son. Imitate Moses and pray that God would pardon and forgive your sins and the sins of your unbelieving family members, friends, neighbors, and co-workers for the glory of His name. So, will the Lord pardon the sins of Israel? Will the people of Israel receive a reprieve from God's judgment, or will they receive a recompense for their sin? The answer is yes. Yes, Israel will receive a reprieve from God's judgment, and they will receive recompense for their sin. That's what we see in Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 to 35. Here we're looking at the receipt, the reprieve, and the recompense. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 to 35 with me. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers." And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not 
one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years. And shall suffer for your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity forty years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. These verses open by communicating to us that Moses' pleas for pardon prevail. But as we keep reading, we learn that God's punishment of the rebellious people of Israel is not entirely averted. While Israel is given a reprieve, she is also given the earthly consequences of her sin. God does pardon Israel according to Moses' words. He does not wipe out Israel or disinherit them. He does not start over with Moses as he threatened to do. Israel will enter the promised land. God's story of bringing His people into His place and under His rule will continue, but it will continue with a new generation. Through these verses, we learn that though we may be forgiven of our sin, the earthly consequences of our sin may still remain. A thief may be forgiven by those whom he has stolen from, but that does not mean that he will avoid a prison sentence. Though we may be forgiven of our sins by God or others, there still may be earthly consequences due to them. And what are the consequences for Israel's sin and rebellion? Only what the people asked for. Look at verse 28 again. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do. Do you understand what the Lord is saying? The Lord is saying, I will give you what you asked for as judgment and punishment. God will give His people what they asked for, just like the time the people of Israel asked for meat in Numbers 11. You remember, God gave the people of Israel so much meat that it served as a judgment to them. It became loathsome to them. And that's what He's going to do on this occasion. God will give Israel what she asked for as judgment. Remember in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, you look at those verses... What did the people of Israel ask for? They asked to go back to Egypt. Now notice in verse 25, the Lord instructs them to set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Red Sea. That is virtually a command to Israel to go ahead and start making their way back to Egypt. Remember in verse 3 of chapter 14, how they feared dying by the sword in the land. Well, as we'll see in verses 36 to 45, many of the people of Israel will die by the sword as they try to go up into the land. And finally, and most central to the book of Numbers, remember how in verse 2 of chapter 14, they wished that they would have died in the wilderness. Well, according to verse 29, 
the Lord will give this wicked generation their request as all who are 20 years old and up, all but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, will die in the wilderness. 20 years old in the Bible is the original age of accountability. The Lord will cause the people of Israel to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until the whole generation dies. Do you see, I wonder if you see the mercy and judgment in that. Right? He, he judges a whole generation, but mercifully, he still preserves his people. It's remarkable. The Lord will cause the people of Israel to wander for 40 years. And the Lord, he, he matches Israel's punishment to Israel's desires, and he, he pairs the length, length of years to the length of days that Israel spied out the land. And what is most harrowing about these verses is that the Lord guarantees these promises of judgment by swearing by himself. So you just, you know it's going to come to pass. Look at verse 35. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. And can you just, you feel the Lord's pain and that his people whom he has loved and saved. They've sinned against him, rebelled against him. They've come together against him in this wilderness. And they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. They were dead men walking in that wilderness. Pardoned and forgiven, but barred from entering the promised land and under the sentence of death. Just like Adam after the garden and his sin. Moses, he was to go and report this sober news to the people of Israel. And how would they respond? Sadly, they would respond with continuing rebellion. Read Numbers Chapter 14, verses 36 to 45. We see here the rebellion continues. 36 to 45. And, and the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumbled against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? When that will not succeed. Do, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. 
In, in verses 36 and 37, we see that the Lord began keeping His word concerning this generation dying in the wilderness. The first to die are those who brought the first bad report concerning the land. And this should have been an obvious sign to the people of Israel that their ways were not to be followed. Moses gives the Lord's response to the people's rebellion. And at first, we are hopeful that they might repent of their rebellion. For we're told there in verse 39 that the people mourned greatly. Repentance may include sorrow and mourning for sin. But it also means turning away from sin and turning toward God. It means living under God's rule and doing what He commands. In, in this instance, it would mean that the people of Israel should begin to make their way toward the Red Sea, as the Lord instructed them to do in verse 25. But do the people of Israel make their way to the Red Sea? No. In verse 40, we're told that they make their way to the Promised Land. They have confessed and mourned over the consequences of their sin, but they have not repented of it. They are still living how they think is best. They are living in obedience to their own commands and living under their own rule rather than God's rule. In other words, they are continuing to rebel against God. And Moses even asks them there in verse 41, look at his question, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Notice the nature of sin. It's futile. It's transgressing the command of the Lord. It's shirking His rule. It's irrational, too. They will not succeed. It's presumptuous. Sin is presumptuous, presuming upon God's kindness and mercy. In verse 44, we're told that the people of Israel presumed to go up to the land. And chapter 14, it, it just it ends with a thud. Israel is defeated and pursued. In the, in the storyline of Numbers, we have moved far from the hope of entering the land that God promised in victory to running away from the land in defeat. In the storyline of the Old Testament and the Bible, we are a long way from God's people being in God's place under God's rule. And if we are not careful, we will view these chapters as entirely dark. But the truth is, there is much hope in them. There is a strong and bright ray of hope that we need to consider. So let's turn now and consider our final point, the ray of hope. And as we do, we need to go back and read Numbers chapter 14, verses 30 and 31 again. Numbers 14, verses 30 and 31. And as we read these verses, let's remember that in the lead up to these verses, God has just promised that He will give the people of Israel what they asked for, and that a whole generation will die in the wilderness. So, so keeping that in mind, read Numbers 14, verses 30 to 31. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Do you see the ray of hope in these verses? Do you see how the story of God's people and God's place under God's rule will continue on? In these verses, do you see how God is committed to bringing that to pass? And do you see how these events foreshadow what God would ultimately do in and through His Son, Jesus Christ? The ray of hope in these verses is that even in the face of Israel's sin and rejection of God, God does not reject Israel. 
While they have been faithless, He has remained faithful. He will not disinherit them and keep them out of the promised land altogether. He will remain faithful to His promises to Abraham. He will raise up two men, Caleb and Joshua, who will survive the 40 grueling years in the wilderness with people dying all around them. And Joshua in particular will lead the people of Israel to conquer the promised land. That is how the story of God's people in God's place under God's rule will continue on. And it will continue on not by the will of man, but by the will of God. I don't know about you, but there are two things that I, I really love about verse 31. First, God promises to protect the little ones that the people of Israel were so worried about. The parents of those children who, who thought that they could devise a better plan of protection for their children by rebelling against God, they refused to enter the promised land. But, but who, who is going to protect them all along? Who is going to make sure that those vulnerable little children actually made it to the promised land? God was. That was his plan. He always has a better plan than we can devise. And the second thing that I love about verse 31 is God's resolve in bringing his purposes to pass. Concerning those children who are vulnerable, he says, I will, I will bring them in. He, he undertakes their protection and he undertakes the fulfillment of his promises. His word is sure because he cannot fail. Do you, do you see how, how these Old Testament events foreshadow what God would ultimately do in and through his son, Jesus Christ? You know, back in the book of Exodus, God calls Israel, the people of Israel, his son. Just like the people of Israel, they, they were rebellious in the wilderness. They were God's disobedient son. Just as Adam, as Luke's gospel refers to him, Adam was God's disobedient son in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 and Numbers 13 and 14 and the rest of the Old Testament show us that we need an obedient son. In the New Testament, we learn at Jesus' baptism that he is the son in whom God the Father is well pleased. And do you know what happens immediately after that declaration that Jesus is my son in whom I'm well pleased, what happens immediately after Jesus' baptism? Do you know where he goes? He goes to the wilderness. He goes to the wilderness. God's son, once again in the wilderness, he faces the difficulties of the desert and the sly temptations of the serpents. He spent 40 days wandering the wilderness. Each day for each year of Israel's wanderings. But unlike Israel, and unlike Adam, he came out of the wilderness as God's obedient and faithful son. He never rebelled against God. Jesus, he marched out of the wilderness as the new Joshua. Because that's that's the translation of the name Joshua in the Greek, Jesus. Like Joshua, Jesus went on to conquer the enemies of God's people. He conquered Satan 
and suffering and sin and death. And just as Joshua was with those children in the wilderness as they wandered, so Jesus is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's with us in the wilderness of this world. And just as God promised to protect and defend those children in the wilderness, so He has promised to do the same with us through Jesus. Jesus is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is more, while an entire generation died in the wilderness, we know that we have a better hope. For Jesus has told us in John 6.39 and John 10.29 that He will not lose one of all that the Father has promised to give to Him. And if we are in Christ, then we have no need to fear losing our inheritance. So, so what then does Numbers 13 and 14 have to say to us? How are we to live in the wilderness of this world in light of this text? And this is where I want us to conclude. I want us to conclude by asking the question, how are we to live in the wilderness of the world in light of Numbers 13 and 14? And in God's kindness and grace, we're told exactly what Numbers 13 and 14 mean for us as Christians today. We're told what these chapters mean for us in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. That's why we read a portion of that passage earlier in the, script, in the service. And do you recall the, the encouragements and the admonitions of Hebrews 3 and 4, that passage? If you don't, I'm going to remind them of you now. But I'd encourage you to read those chapters later this afternoon in light of Numbers 13 and 14. In Hebrews 3 and 4, there are at least three admonitions to us as the New Testament people of God, those who are wandering through the wilderness of this world. First, we are urged not to harden our hearts and rebel. We hear God's voice as we read His Word, and so we should respond to His Word with obedience and faith. That is how we keep our hearts from being hardened. Israel hardened their hearts by refusing to listen to and obey God. Obedience to God keeps our hearts submissive and soft. Second, in Hebrews 3 and 4, we're encouraged to exhort one another. That's what Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua tried to do. They tried to encourage Israel not to rebel, but to follow God in faith. We need to exhort one another to keep marching through the wilderness, to keep walking by faith. And trusting that God is true to His promises. We need to encourage one another to strive to enter the rest of the promised land. And finally, in light of Numbers 13 and 14 and Hebrews 3 and 4, we are encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we are, are wandering through the wilderness of this world, is there a day in which we do not need God's mercy? Is there a day in which we do not need grace? Is there a day in which we are not without need? So let's, let's go to our Savior and confess that we are too much like Israel. We are tempted to rebel and run away. Let's ask Him for mercy and grace, let's ask Him to come and finally bring us into God's place under God's rule. And let's rejoice that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Let's pray together.